Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. We're starting a, a new series here um, for Christmas, and it's uh, starting here at Thanksgiving. I know that's a little late for some of you. You thought Christmas started at Halloween, but... Uh, <laughs> We're, we're still going to get on the train right now, and um, I, I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you've got them with you, to Psalm chapter 92. I know a lot of you will also uh, pull those up on a phone. Uh, make sure that you get the, uh, the whole psalm there, starting right with the little inscription right up next to the side. As you're doing that, um, a, a few folks had heard that I was gone this last couple of weeks. We had just uh, some amazing preaching that was happening here. Um, and I was really thankful to see that. I saw that uh, there was actually handwriting that happened on the wall while I was gone. That was uh, crazy. Um, but I was thankful for the guys that were preaching here. I was down at a uh, little home church. Uh, I, I've told you many times about a pastor, Charlie Allison, who had shared the gospel with my family. Um, I got to go back and preach at that church. They invited me to come down there. They're looking for a pastor. I wanted to be really clear that I was not preaching for whether or not I was going to go join that church or leave from here. But it was awesome to go back to a place where you were born uh, to salvation. And so um, I was thankful that I was able to do that and be confident that things were handled here in a beautiful way. And I know that uh, Matt and Pete did a, an awesome job carrying us through the book of Daniel. But now we're going to be looking at this next few weeks, the vital signs of Christmas. As I was preparing for this, uh, I read the story about Tilly, two-year-old border collie, uh, that actually um, was in a car accident uh, in Idaho. You know, everybody's going to Idaho. Nobody there drives right. I'm just telling you, stay put, okay, folks? It's a theme week after week. Somebody pulling a horse trailer, was trying to turn one direction, and a Buick coming the opposite direction, T-boned this, uh, this truck. Tilly was in the back of the truck and uh, gets flung from the accident scene. They're so worried about the people, they didn't know where Tilly was. Uh, so they put out a, basically an APB on Tilly the dog, this border collie. And a week later, two miles from the accident site, they find Tilly. Tilly was in a sheep field and on her way trying to find some humans that would maybe get her safely home. She discovered a whole herd of sheep and her instincts kicked in. And for that entire week, Tilly was herding that group of sheep. So what do you do when you're freaked out? You just turn to the next group of people to shepherd, right? And uh, Tilly is in that field, and her uh, owner found her, said, man, she was none the worse for wear. I just gave her a bunch of water. She was actually a lot lighter. It was good exercise during the course of that week. Why do I tell you that story? Sometimes in the middle of a crisis, you can find your calling. Do you know that? The middle of a crisis, you can find your calling. It may not be that hard times only leave scars. They might leave you with a purpose. And what we find in Psalm chapter 92 is at the very heart of a believer's life, there should be a thankful spirit. We talked about this in the Satisfied Life at the beginning of the year. We said it was a theme we were going to bring up over and over again. And so I submit it to you again today. A believer should be thankful. 
We're going to be stronger on the inside. I know you guys are tired. I'm trying to, uh, I'm going to do my best to wake you up this morning, but amen goes right there. Believers should be thankful. All right. Uh, this, uh, this title uh, actually is one that I was talking with a good friend of mine, Bruce Stefanik. He's a pastor in town here. And he just finished a series on vital signs, and they were talking about some of these critical pieces in a human, uh, a believer's life. And uh, it just fits so well with what I believe we need to be talking about in this season. This season, for many of you, as I'm listening to what you are planning to do, you feel like Christmas is on life support. Like there might not be much to celebrate. And the reasoning is not because Christ somehow got knocked off the throne or our hope has somehow been displaced or that there is no future for the believer. That's not what has been changed. It literally has everything to do with our surroundings. And so we're talking about the vital signs of Christmas, and we cannot get to critical key components that God said are a part of a celebration of the birth of the Savior unless we start with a thankful heart. This passage also has something unique. It is Thanksgiving, and I knew that we'd have some extra kids in here. In verse 10, if some of you are still reading out of the King James Version, by the way, we can give you uh, another version for free right at the door if you want one that you can read easily at home. But if you're still reading King James, you will find in verse 10, it says, you've lifted up my horn like that of a wild ox. If you're reading the King James or... Out of the original Hebrew, you will actually see a word there you did not know was in your Bible. It's unicorn. I'm not kidding. Unicorns are in the Bible. Look at this. Um, By the way, this is probably uh, one of the first examples of somebody lying about their looks on the internet, okay? Because an actual unicorn looks like this. Yes. It actually was a one-horned ox that went extinct. That's the actual thing that is being described. He lied about his size, weight, and looks on the internet. And uh, we've all been following suit ever since. Why is that important? Because it actually says that there is a certain type of strength that you can only get from the Lord, and it is as fearsome, as strong, as profound as this one-horned ox. In other words, you wouldn't mess with this guy in a grocery aisle, and you won't mess with the redeemed when they're walking with the Lord. How do we get there? Psalm 92. Let's stand and read this whole thing together. It's a psalm. It says at the very beginning, literally written for the Sabbath day. Psalm 92, it says this, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praise to your name, most high, to declare your faithful love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. With a ten-stringed harp and a music of a lyre, you have made me rejoice, Lord, by what you have done. I will shout for joy because of the works of your hands. How magnificent are your works, Lord. How profound are your thoughts, A stupid person does not know. A fool does not understand this. Though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be eternally destroyed. But you, Lord, are exalted forever. For indeed, Lord, your enemies, indeed, your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. You have lifted up my horn like that of a wild ox. I've been anointed with the finest oil. 
My eyes look at my enemies when evildoers rise against me. My ears hear them. The righteous thrive like a palm tree. They grow like a cedar tree in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they thrive in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. All our senior saints said? Yeah. (laughs) Healthy and green. To declare the Lord is just, he is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. You believe that psalm is true? It is. You may take your seats. I want us to do something, uh, partly because we might be a little bit sleepy, but also because when we see psalms of thanksgiving um, read all the way through the psalms, there is a consistent pattern, and one of them uh, that puts it on display in a profound way, just write it down in your own notes there, is Psalm 136, uh, where it says a little phrase of something that God did, and all of God's people said it's good to give thanks to the Lord. His faithfulness endures uh, forever. It was a call and response. I want you to notice that this, uh, at the very beginning, is a song for the Sabbath day. Uh, It's for the seventh day. So I just want you, in your mind, to hear that. It says at the very beginning, this is a song for the Sabbath. Think about what you think that means. Put that in a little box. Set that aside for later. It's like we're cooking on one of those cooking shows, okay? (laughs) Just get that warmed in the skillet till it's fragrant. Set it aside. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Psalm 136 asks for a call and response. This is what I want us to do. I'm going to shout out throughout this message, it is good to give thanks to the Lord. And this little section over here, these two uh, sections of seats over here, I want you to say his creation is inspiring. So I'll say it's good to give thanks to the Lord. Your, your level of loudness is not, however, Okay. <laughs> It is good to give thanks to the Lord. All right, these middle two sections right here, you are going to say his ways are deep after they're done, okay? Say it. His ways are deep. Great. And this section right here, this little two, are going to be the final one. You will say his people will flourish forever. Great job. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. Great job. Yeah, that is awesome. That, by the way, is the points of the sermon this morning. So we are going to do this right now. It's good to give thanks to the Lord. Point one. Good job. Yeah, we did it. It's like the wave. His creation is inspiring. I want you to notice this in here. It says it's good to give thanks to the Lord. Pause. To sing praise to your name most high, to declare your faithful love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. With a ten-stringed harp and the music of a lyre, uh, you have made me rejoice, Lord, by what you have done. He just fills up these opening verses with uh, delight over creation. Not delight in what was going on around him. We find out actually that there's a lot of things that he could have been discouraged by. But he is filling up these opening verses with the delight of creation. Do you know that despite your circumstances, you can still be in awe of the night sky? 
I have a picture of the universe here. Dr. Swenson, uh, who writes about this, and I've shared from his book quite often, he has this to say. He says, when God set out to create a human-oriented universe, he apparently showed a preference for dimensional symmetry. The dimensions of the largest created entity that we know at this time, namely the entire universe, are 10 to the 27th power meters in size, while the dimensions of the smallest subatomic particle are 10 to the 26th power in size. Humans fall right in the center of that. When astrophysicist Joel Primack was asked about the significance of this, he said he was unsure, but he commented, it does make for a soul-satisfying cosmology. We're right in the middle of God's scale. We have the entire universe that we can look at. Just imagine as you're looking up at the light sky and, and, uh, or the night sky and you see the light that is coming from us. We use that light in so many different ways. We use it to judge how far away something is. We can tell by a red shift or something whether or not there is a greater distance uh, from us removed. We, can, we measure the, the space inside of that universe in light years, how far it would take light to travel over a year. One scientist says this, light isn't just the colors of the rainbow or the stuff plants use to make food, though. It's much more than that. Light is the smallest amount of energy that can be transported. Light is created when an electron in an atom moves from high energy, excited state to a lower energy state, and the excess energy from this transition is emitted as a photon. Now, we're not going to get into all the details, and for those of you that are truly scientifically oriented, please excuse my slaughtering of your domain. But I just want us, in layman's terms, to understand some significant things. I just want us to consider light for a moment. We have a picture of cells here. It goes all the way from the universe all the way down to the cells that we have in our bodies. Little tiny balls of light. Let's just stay right there and consider light for a moment. Some scientists actually believe that all of the matter in the universe that you and I see and can relate to is made up in essence of light. Scientists also working at the Stanford Linear Accelerator succeeded in making matter from pure light. They took photons, they concentrated this energy beam of photons towards each other, tried to smash these photons into each other. In a 10-minute window, they used more energy than it takes to power the entire state of Pennsylvania for a month in 10 minutes, right? Saving the planet one experiment at a time. They took all of this and jammed it into this uh, concentrated beam where they smashed photons together and they actually came up to what in essence would be to you and I dust particles, but these photon beams turned into matter. They went in reverse. We've been able to take matter and turn it into energy, but they actually had energy come back and turn into matter. That's a recent study. At MIT, a team discovered how to manipulate little tiny particles they called Janus particles so that they would respond to simple light. They have known for a while how to get um, cells to respond to laser beams. 
Uh, you can do all kinds of damage with a laser beam, but what happens with just general light? What if you were to change the color of the lights from red to blue uh, and, and actually turn cells inside a system in an individual into a little tractor beam where you could pull poisonous particles out of a body? Or they were actually able to do this by changing the colors of light and, and impacting these particles. They, they developed tiny little tweezers able to pick up a particle one one-hundredth of the width of a hair just by the manipulation of light. Seven years ago, scientists were shocked and amazed when they discovered that the moment of conception could be seen and captured on film. Do you want to know what they did? They began to film this, and they saw a flash of light. Complicated process that happens involving zinc, where all of a sudden there was a flash of of phosphorescent light, and they realized that conception had happened. Dr. Robert Lanza working with eye cells, epithelial cells, hoping to reverse blindness, discovered that cells aren't just building blocks. They're not just little wiring harnesses that you plug into a system, but they actually come preset containing information that teaches the brain how to interact with light. They teach the brain about shape and distance and depth and material. So you're not just seeing shapes, but you're able to realize how you are to then interact with your body with those shapes and all of these other things as light is bouncing off of you and I, as we're even being able to see in the room because of the way that light bounces off of other people. This transference of light is a critical thing that is just innately a part of what we accept as existence. In 1 John 1, 5, Scripture says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. There is absolutely no darkness in him. John 1, 3 through 5 says, all things were created through him and apart from him, not one thing was created that's been created. In him was life and that life is the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and yet the darkness did not overcome it. God is light. His creation is inspiring. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. Awesome. You're hanging in there, man. I almost put you to sleep. I can feel it, but I'm working hard. Our second point this morning is his ways are deep. I want you to see this word in here, and um, I want you to see that it's actually in your Bible. It says, how magnificent are your works, verse 5, O Lord, how profound are your thoughts, Profound, literally, how deep are your ways? It says, a stupid person does not know, a fool does not understand this. Now, if you have kids in the room, I'm sorry, that's actually in your Bible, okay? What does that word stupid there mean? It consistently relates. Yeah, and by the way, uh, in Hebrew, stupid means stupid, okay? (laughs) What is it actually referring to? It is the way that an animal interacts with the world around it where it just goes from hunger to hunger. The animal has an appetite, a desire, and it only moves by what has been um, basically building up within it. It reacts to the world around it and it acts by instinct. Our instinct is to be fearful. Our instinct is to be driven by our desires. Our instinct is to run away when God says stay. His ways are deep. Bertrand Russell 
when he was studying, and he was a famous atheist, but he was studying and uh, began to realize what his beliefs would produce in the heart of a man who was really listening to him. He said this, he said, with regard to the meaning of life, if what he believed about life was true, he says, man is the product of causes which have no prevision of the end that they were achieving. That is his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and beliefs are just the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. No fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. All the labors of the ages, all of the devotion, all of the inspiration, all of the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. The whole temple of man's achievement will inevitably be burned beneath the debris of a universe that will be someday in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, by that he means that everything is gonna come to nothing and your life is meaningless and you have no hope. Only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can your soul's habitation henceforth be built. That is atheism in a nutshell. What do you have to look forward to? If what he believes, that there is no God, if that is true, then he's accurate. There is nothing for you to look forward to. Compare that instead to what Revelation 21, 3 and 4 says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. God has built a hope in the human heart that is centered on him. The only reason that you can have hope for anything good is if there is a good God that orders the universe. Without a God that orders the universe, you have no hope. You cannot create hope. You cannot manufacture happiness. It is only found if there is a God and centered on him. A group of 25 atheists at a convention were asked this question. They were asked to, to consider for a moment. Imagine that you're seeing a rushing river going by, and all of a sudden you think that you see a pile of leaves, but in fact what it is is an elderly woman who has gotten caught up in the confluence. And they asked him a question. You look around for help. There's no one in sight. You have only seconds to decide whether or not to jump in after her, recognizing that doing so will put your own life in significant peril. Is it rational for you to risk your life to save this stranger, one? And two, is it morally good to do so? The atheists, when they were faced with this, only four out of the 25 were able to say unequivocally that it would be rational to jump in. And they said, as far as it being morally good, it was morally ambivalent. There is actually no ability to further the species, to progress as a civilization. There was no benefit to humanity in saving that individual. 
They could not say for sure that it would be worth it. For the believer, the answer to both of these questions is an emphatic yes. It is rational to risk your life for a stranger, and it is morally good to do so. Why? Because the God of the universe stoops down for you and I. He actually came out of heaven, a place where he was in perfect display, where everything is in harmony, and came here to earth for you and I in order for us to exchange the rot and filth of the way that we think for his goodness. His ways are deep. He says that by doing that, it's going to begin to undo all of the rot, the filth, and the evil. And there's coming a day when evil will unwind its tentacles. It will be completely crushed. There will be only good that remains because of the activity of God in the universe. And it's because he stoops down. He wants us to do likewise. His ways are way deeper. Um, In the Willamette Valley, you will actually see something. On a regular basis, you will still see this. Uh, It's field burning. And a lot of people have asked over the years, why in the world would you do field burning? Isn't that an outdated way of being able to kill off those things? Wouldn't it be better if you just sprayed it? And we've seen the results of uh, spraying even in our own health, haven't we? What is the benefit of field burning? What they found out is that, uh, and, and actually the Native Americans that were in this area before this understood There is a nutrient that is left behind by the burning of those fields, by all of the debris. It gets rid of naturally all um, of the weeds and stuff that would be toxic to creatures. There's a fresh growth that comes as a result on the heels of that heat blowing through. There are some seeds that are only germinated by heat. As a field burns, it actually burns in preparation for a greater tomorrow. Read what it says in here. It says, though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be eternally destroyed. We right now worship today in this place in an era of superheroes. The TV is filled with them. There is not a right now thriving network that does not have its own version of a superhero story that is playing so that you will watch it. Why is our nation hungry for superheroes? They want somehow for evil to be removed and for a victor to stand on the ashes of that. We love those stories. It's a story that calls to our heart. We ache for this conclusion. We struggle when God says that it will happen this way because we don't like God to be God. We want to be the ones that decide it. But God actually says... Only a fool will look around at the circumstances that we are in and lose heart. Why? Because God's ways are so much deeper than what you are seeing. If on the surface, like an animal, you are just running towards despair, you are hurtling towards fear, don't be like the animals. See what it is that God is actually about. The question this morning is, do you actually believe that God is at work? He is. And because of that, it is good to give thanks to the Lord. All right, man, we're on that final point. Good job. This, these people over here are killing it. His people will flourish forever. I want you to notice what it says here. It says in verse 12 that the righteous thrive like a palm tree. They grow like a cedar tree in Lebanon. You you will see this theme, by the way, all the way through the Psalms. 
a palm tree or a cedar tree, both of those are evergreen. They, they don't lose their leaves. They are always green. They are always available. They are always a source of shade in a desert region. It says, the righteous thrive like a palm tree and grow like a cedar tree in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they thrive in the courts of our God. They'll still bear fruit in old age, healthy and green. I want you to notice, first of all, where they take root. It says, planted in the house of the Lord. It does not say who planted them there. It says that this is where they find their sustenance. A palm tree actually has a tap root so that it can survive the winds and abuse that would come at it from a hurricane. Uh, it actually drives down deep. And the idea is that here is a palm tree whose tap root is driven down deep into what it means to be a believer. The house of God. It doesn't mean that all of Israel was only supposed to stay in the temple. No, it's talking about this relationship with God that wherever you go, you, when you see a righteous man and you see him flourishing, it's not because he's responding to the circumstances. It's because he's driven himself deep on his Savior. That's what he's focused on. Notice when they bear fruit. It says they will still bear fruit in old age. A clean translation of that is they will bear fruit in old age. Planted at the headstone of many of their famous rabbis, uh, Jewish believers, Hebrew uh, believers actually will plant a carob tree. Uh, one um, famous rabbi was observing an older man who was planting a carob tree. And he spoke to this old man and he, and he saw that he was elderly. He was uh, maybe within the last 10 years of his life. And he spoke to him and he said, Sir, why are you planting this carob tree if you know that the first time that the carob tree will give off its fruit, it will be 70 years? Why would you plant this tree? And he says, Well, when I came here, there were carob trees. They were planted by my great-grandparents and by my grandparents. The carob tree that you see here, this one that's giving fruit, some believe is almost 600 years old. They're in the, the land of Israel. 70 years it takes to bear fruit, he says, I, I'm planting this tree not for me, I'm planting it for the future generations. I'm planting it for the next generation and the next generation. When it says that they will still bear fruit in old age, it's not because they were just wanting to wait until they were old to see something good come from their relationship with God. It's the idea that only that the fruit that matters is coming out of lives that have been centered on the Lord for a lifetime. Amen? Amen. There is a peace. There is a heartthrob for eternity. There is a transference that happens where the next generation is blessed. My dad, when we were talking about uh, him being asked to share with a group of young men what matters, there was a phrase that had been on his mind. And it's, ever since he said it, it has just uh, not let me go. This entire year, it keeps coming up. And that is that great men plant trees that they will never sit under. What are you actually living out your righteousness for? It says here, that they will still bear fruit in our old age, healthy and green, to declare that the Lord is just. He is my rock, and there's no unrighteousness in him. Why do the righteous flourish? It's not because they are strong. It's because he is. 
and the next generation draws strength from that. By the way, we have some senior saints in our auditorium. We have people who have been living strong with the Lord, and one of the key beautiful things about their life that they grant to us every single week we meet on Tuesdays. By the way, if you're in that senior saint category and you're afraid to be identified with the senior saints, you're missing out. (laughs) Greatest group of people on the planet. What do they declare week after week after week? Not that they are strong, but that God is. When they pray, God moves in our congregation and we see beautiful things that are happening. Not because they are strong, because he is. And they've put their trust in him. They declare in such a way that the next generation is benefited. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. That's the promise of the word of God. As we wrap up, there was uh, a teaching that had been going on in Israel for generations. The rabbis have taught it. It's a... called the Ten Songs. As they went through their Old Testament and they began to look at the promises that were made there, uh, they had listed off ten songs that happened at significant moments and that were used throughout the generations in order to prepare their heart for the millennial reign of the Savior. Ten songs. The first one is actually Psalm 92. This psalm that we are studying today, they believe, was a song written in reflection by Adam. And it was written for the Sabbath day, or literally in response to the very first Sabbath that ever experienced. Sixth day, God creates all of creation. On the seventh, he rests, he rests and gives it to mankind. And then throughout all of their generations, the seventh day was a day that they were supposed to pause and rest. So every single seventh day, Sabbath day, they would read this psalm. They would declare these truths. They would remind each other that no matter what is going on, the righteous will not flourish, that God's ways are deep, and that there is coming a future where God will reign with his people. But in those 10 songs, Song 92 is the beginning, they actually say there is a a song there for when God set them free from captivity. God is our Savior. And when he planted a well in the middle of the desert for them, he, he cares about our daily nourishment. When he, uh, through Hannah, gives them a prophet that would allow them to become a nation. There's a song of David. There's a song of Solomon. And there is a final song that they say has yet to be written. We don't know the words yet, they said. Because it's a song that will be sung as a result of the Messiah establishing his kingdom. A final rest where evil no longer exists. Do you believe that day is coming? They have taught throughout all their generations they are looking forward to the day. Though many of them do not know that Savior, we know his name. We know that it's Jesus. Let me read to you once again in Revelation his words coming from the throne of God. In Revelation 21 it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity. He will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them. And he will be their God. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain, no more. 
because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. He said, write it down because these words are faithful and true. Do you believe them? Those words will carry you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would make us thankful this morning, that you would send us out of here with a heart of thanksgiving, that we would be able to declare to the people around us that you are a God that is good, that you've not left us alone without a witness. Father, we pray that we would see not only the beauty of your creation, that our our breath would still get caught up when we look into the night sky, that we would see all of the things around that are day after day uttering speech with words that we can't hear. Father, I pray that we would see that you are a lot deeper than the surface issues of our day. You are at work in a way that we cannot wrap our minds around. And someday we will declare your righteousness to your face, in your presence, but also to all of your people. You are good. You keep your promises. They do not pass away. Father, we thank you for that. And we ask that you would help us to rejoice in this season that we would be truly thankful and that the heart of Christmas for us would be started. Would, uh, we would hear its heartbeat once again with our thanks to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.